A word on the ancestry or genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The most extensive accounts are in Matthew and Luke. They do not completely agree. Some names are mentioned that are not otherwise mentioned. And it is clear that in some instances there are gaps which even then could not be filled by historical knowledge. But we learn, number one, that among the ancestors of Jesus we must include four remarkable women, but their lives were not flawless and there are traditions about them that alert us that genealogy is not always a pure and unbroken stream of righteousness, not even for Jesus. I'm speaking here of Tamar, for example, who is included in the Matthew account, and also Rahab, who delivered or helped deliver the Israelites at Jericho. But Rahab was known as uh, a harlot. We read further that the undergirding motivation of these two lists is to establish three main points. First, that Jesus, by counting the ancestry of his stepfather, namely Joseph, can be traced back to David. To be a son of David is to be in the messianic line, for the promises are made over and over to him. But at the same time, some have argued, for Jesus to claim to be the Messiah or for anyone to claim it for him is to imply that by that, if it is a genuine claim, he becomes a son of David in a symbolic sense. The writers of the genealogy are saying that he is literally and lineally connected to David. The second motivation is to take him back even further, to make him a son of Abraham to whom the promise was made that in him and through him all nations would be blessed. Now the promise that nations would come out of the loins of Abraham through his seed and in honor of the very name of God is a promise that has been fulfilled historically and actually. In our own time it is at least likely by extrapolating from the data that in any room of a hundred persons chosen at random from the world's population, a fair sample, to use the language of science, that in any such room of a hundred persons, at least 90 have a lineal connection to Father Abraham. And the margin of error could range from five to six percent. That is how Abraham has not only become the father of a nation, but how his posterity have permeated all nations. Jesus, who was the God of, the inspirer of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was himself, when he came into the world, descended from Abraham. The third motivation of the genealogies is to clarify the meaning of the phrase Messiah, which later in all the Greek manuscripts becomes Christos.
Joshua is the earliest form of the word Jesus. Yeshua it becomes in ordinary usage. And there were some who clearly were influenced by the tradition that this one, Yeshua HaMashiach, would be the anointed one. For that is the ultimate meaning in Hebrew of Mashiach, a smearing or an anointing or a kingly conferral, which would entitle this person both to serve in the role of teacher, maybe the supreme teacher, but also to claim for himself the right to royal and ultimately enthroning glory. And this is the stress of Matthew on the mission of Jesus to Israel. It is in the context of the entire house of Israel, which is to say Jacob, the son of Abraham and Isaac. The anointed representative of God is of the royal house, therefore, in summary, of Judah, of Abraham, and of messianic promise. We turn now to eight days later. In Jewish tradition, circumcision is to occur on the eighth day after birth. And speculation continues on why this choice or this period. One example of an explanation is that this is a mark at the very source of life and should be done early, but not so early that it might even jeopardize the life of the newborn son. Another explanation is that if a child has lived eight days, then he has lived through at least one Sabbath. And the Sabbath is so important in the tradition that this somehow is the preface, or thought to be the preface, to the ceremony. We know from modern revelation that the performance of circumcision on the eighth day after birth was to symbolize, and now to quote from the Joseph Smith translation, that children are not accountable before me until they are eight years old. The ceremony then suggests two things, that first the parents are made aware in this formal way that they are responsible for the nurture, the teaching, the support, the care of the little ones until the age of eight. And the idea is also apparent that that is an obligation and an urgent one. But on the other side, the child himself learns fairly early that he himself will become responsible. In this setting, Joseph and Mary brought the child Jesus to the Temple Mount. And the circumcision act was performed probably by what the Jews would call a mohel, who had been specifically trained and was profoundly experienced. It is done with amazing dispatch and with a minimum of pain. Now the child has been circumcised. But two other persons are brought into the scene. There was, first of all, a man named Simeon, whom the scriptures say was just and devout. 
that is also between the lines assumed that he was an aged man. He was impressed that day by the Spirit to enter the temple courts. He had been waiting for years for the fulfillment of a promise that he had received somehow through the Spirit. What he called the consolation of Israel. And for all Israel, the greatest consolation then as now was the messianic hope. And he had the promise that he would live to see the Messiah. He comes into the temple, and when the parents bring the child, he recognizes him and asks if he can hold the child in his own arms and then says in the spirit of blessing, O Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Apparently both Joseph and Mary were surprised, or as the exact phrase has it, they marveled at the things that were spoken of the child. But Simeon then went on. He turned to Mary and said, according to the Joseph Smith translation, Yea, a spear, the King James Version says a sword, shall pierce through him to the wounding of thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now this obviously is a prophetic anticipation of the moment when Jesus is on the cross, when a spear, not a sword, was thrust into his side. And we know from the account of John that Mary, the mother, stood by the cross. The exact language now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. What's the meaning of the idea that the hearts of many may be revealed? This is to suggest, I believe, that just as Mary, the mother, would vicariously go through, endure, and one day, one could hope, transcend the trauma of the experiences of her son. So all who learned of or who witnessed the thrust of the spear would in that way be moved and motivated to respond to what he was doing for mankind. We are told that mercy has compassion on mercy. If there is only a spark only a spark of mercy in a human soul, it will respond to the flame of mercy that comes forth through Jesus Christ. If one cannot feel the healing compassion of Christ by the vicarious awareness, then, so says modern scripture, one must himself suffer actually until he is constrained to acknowledge and is humbled by that very chastening until he no longer ignores what is unignorable, the price and the pain of his own redemption. If, in other words, we are so proud as to ignore the pain of others who serve us, we will be brought to suffer pain of our own. The power of the mother, then, was to feel her son's pain and thus the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. When Herod realized 
that he had been outwitted by the three kings. You recall that they had been invited to apply their astronomical or astrological traditions to the question of uh, where the a Jewish leader or prophet would be born. Herod was so angry that he sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem who were two years old or less. This according to Matthew 2.16. Now whether or not the Magi were involved, there is conviction within the scriptures that this actually occurred. And having recorded it, Matthew adds a verse from Jeremiah, which he says was thus literally fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, the earlier name of Bethlehem, uh, crying and loud lament, Rachel, weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now in the town of Bethlehem, whose estimated size at the time was around 300, there would not be a great many children who were newborn and not yet two. That may account for why, even in such a writer as Josephus, no mention of this incident occurs. But we do know enough about Herod and enough about his character and enough about his anxiety to maintain his power that the act is at least characteristic. Clearly, Jesus later has the child in mind. In saying to some who had abused, or as he put it, offended little children, that such an one might well have not been born, that it would have been better for him that a millstone be hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That is a harsh reprimand. In that generation, as in this, there are those who, in a kind of harsh blindness, abuse children. Children, Jesus made symbolic of the very innocence of heaven and the recent rereading of his verse about the stone is in the line of a person who said, God will not hold him guiltless who removes the light from the eyes of a child. We turn now to the incident that occurred when Jesus was apparently 12 years old. Every year, his parents, according to the record, went up to Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast known as Pesach, the Passover. Maybe as many as 30,000 people came from the Galilee for this celebration. In the first 11 years, they would have left Jesus at home in Nazareth. But on this occasion, they took him with them. And after completing the observance of the Passover, Jesus remained behind and the parents set out for home unaware that he was not in the party and they journeyed a whole day before they began to look for him among relatives and acquaintances and when they did not find him 
they returned to Jerusalem. Luke's account says that on the third day, which may mean after they had traveled all the way north a day and then all the way back south, they found Jesus. He was in the temple area, sitting in the middle of the teachers, and he was both listening and answering. And those who were with him were struck by his comprehension. His parents saw him, and there is a sense of rebuke in his mother's comment. She said to him, apparently, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been worried and have searched for you. And then Jesus replied, as the King James has it, Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? We back up to explain two passages. It may be that this year in Jesus' life, uh, the year of 12 or in the 13th year, was treated even in these days as a bar mitzvah year. This actually is a later ceremony which involves that the young man, and now more in more recent times also the young woman, master one passage from the Torah and be able to deliver it from memory or at least with complete accuracy and then a great celebration is had that they are children of the law of the Torah if it is the case that something like this was the background then that would explain why the parents would feel no longer responsible for Jesus. He would now, as it were, be on his own reconnaissance and would also explain why he would be discussing matters of law, even as it turns out in the temple. In any case, he was discovered and then went back with his parents to Nazareth and the interesting after comment is his mother cherished all these things within her or in the language of the scripture treasured them up so a sense of his promise was now intensified in the mother but the other interesting question is how much by now was Jesus aware of his own future assignment and apparently, from the language used, we have a clue. He didn't exactly say, my father's business. That particular verse has three possible readings. One, do you not realize that I should be in my father's house? A reference to the temple, which is referred to over and over in the Old Testament as the house of God. Another reading is, do you not realize that I am to be among those whom God has chosen? A reference now to those learned and apparently religiously committed ones who were discussing the law with him. And then a third reading is, don't you realize I am going to serve the Father? And this is the beginning. 
Each of those tell us that Jesus was a sober and concerned young man, and also between the lines tell us that, as would later be the case, he would teach in two places mainly, namely in the synagogue and in the temple. And some of his most important discourses were in fact delivered in the courts of the Temple Mount, and especially those that are recorded in great detail in the Gospel of John. This concludes what we really know from the early scriptural sources of what scholars call the infancy narratives. And now there is almost nothing that relates to the life and growth of Jesus until we reach his so-called public ministry years, which now center around Galilee in the north.